0: Well, As I mentioned, the evening messages at Keswick this past week were from the first four chapters of Hebrews. Um, If you know the the book of Hebrews, you'll be aware that um, it contains a warning to a group of Christians with a Jewish background to not drift in their faith, to not drift away from Christ, and to drift back to their Jewish practices. And one of the greatest challenges for us as Christians is that of drift. You know, it's rare that someone who is a Christian will one day suddenly decide that they no longer believe that there is a God, that Jesus is not the Son of God, and that they no longer need his forgiveness. But it is more common that over a period of time, people may gradually lose their enthusiasm for Jesus, their commitment to to praying, to, to reading the Bible. They become more interested in the things of the world. And gradually... They get to the point that they lose their relationship with Jesus. And so in chapter 2, the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes this. He writes, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. How does the writer encourage them to stand firm in their faith and not drift away? But one of the ways is by reminding them of who Jesus is. And this evening I'm going to spend just a short while encouraging us by looking at these first four verses that tell us about who Jesus is. And the first thing that, um, they tell us is that he is a divine messenger. Verse one says in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God speaks. He communicates with his people. He's a relational God and relationships are dependent on communication. He wants us to, to know him and love him and obey him. First God spoke through the prophets and then he spoke through his son. There's a progressive revelation up to the point of Christ. But there's no further revelation beyond him. It is complete and when he says in these last days, he doesn't mean that recently, but in the period of time between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. And the message that Jesus brought was the fulfillment of everything that had been said before. What was that message? Well, we heard that earlier when in the series of Mark's Gospel we've been doing on Sunday evenings. Remember we read this right at the beginning? Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The good news is the gospel, that we as created beings can enjoy a relationship with the creator God who made us. And we can have that relationship by believing that Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins. He's a divine messenger. He is the heir of all things. In Psalm 2, we read a similar words as the father speaks to the son in Psalm 2 and says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You might remember the devil trying to, to tempt Jesus by offering him everything he could see. He took him to that place high and looked over and said, all this can be yours. But of course, it wasn't really his to give because it all belongs to Jesus in the first place. And what that means for us is that if all things belong to Jesus, then when he makes us a promise, he is able to keep it. When he says that we can have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, then we can trust that that is true. Because there's nothing in all creation that doesn't belong to him. Thirdly, he is creator. Of the universe. The writer is focusing on the future, but then he goes back to the past and describes the son as the one through whom God also made the universe. He is creator. He is the father's agent in the creation of the universe. We, We read about that role at the beginning of John's gospel, where it says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. It was through Jesus that God brought the whole universe of space and time into being. And why does the writer mention this? Because it backs up what he's just said about Jesus being heir. How can we trust the statement that Jesus is heir? Because if the Son made the universe, then he must have existed before he came to earth. And he must have already owned the universe if he created it with the Father. Fourthly, he is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. What exactly does that mean? Well, God's glory is his greatness. It's all that makes him God, his godness, if you like. So for the sun to be the radiance of God's glory is to say that he's shining forth his glory. And the reason he can do that is because he is God. He shares the glory of God helpful analogy might be that the rays of the sun that radiate light and heat, those rays are not separate from the sun, they're part of the sun, but they're elements of the sun that tell us about the sun. Christ is, has been, and always will be coexistent with the Father. In the case we're in any doubt about the divine nature of the sun, the writer reinforces that by saying he is the exact representation of his being. Just as we see the sun by seeing the rays of the sun, when we see Jesus, we see the Father. As Jesus said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Fifthly, he is the sustainer of all things. He sustains all things by his powerful word. God called the universe into being by his powerful word. He said, let there be light. And there was. And it's by that same powerful word that he sustains the world. Think of all the powerful utterances that that Jesus made while he was on earth. He said to the wind and waves, be still. And they were. He said to a get-dead girl, get up. And she did. He said to the demons, get out. And they did. He said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. As it says in Colossians, in him, all things hold together. He is in control of every star and planet in the universe, and there are billions of those. He is in control of every cell in your body, all 100 trillion of them. We can worry about the state of our planet, about the state of our country, about the state of our mind and body, but Jesus sustains all things, and that should give us great reassurance. Sixthly, he is purifier, he provided purification from sins. And here's a shift from who Jesus is in terms of his divine being to what he came to do, his relationship with humankind. In short, he came to deal with sin. And what is sin? to well, ultimately, it's a lack of trust in God. If you've got your Bibles open, look down to verse 12. It says this, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart, that turns away from the living God. Sin is a rejection of God, which causes our relationship with God to be broken. And to be purified, it's not to have every trace of sin eradicated from our lives. That won't happen this side of eternity. But to be considered pure in the sight of God by Jesus taking the penalty for our sins, the penalty that we deserved, and us receiving his righteousness the amazing thing is that purification for sin has been provided for us as a gift for us as we acknowledge our guilt purifier what did he do after he provided purification for sins well he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven it's not that he's literally sitting on a throne it's an expression to show that he shares a throne um with the father he is king He's always been king, but uh, it was because of his death that the Father raised him to life and exalted him as king. Jesus' victory over sin and death has been demonstrated in his crowning. And to sustain the universe and to reign over the universe as king are similar concepts that express the power of God. Nothing can happen without him allowing it. And verse 8 reassures us that he will reign forever. And finally, Jesus is superior to the angels. And it's an interesting one, this, isn't it? Because the writer doesn't just leave it there with just one short reference to that. But he goes on for the rest of the chapter and into chapter 2 with a further explanation for why Jesus is superior to the angels. It's clear that the readers of this letter think highly of the the angels, which is not surprising. After all, they are messengers who've brought some of the most important messages from God. There's an angel who appeared to Moses from a burning bush. An angel who told Mary that she would give birth to the Son of God. He told Joseph that that was about to happen. We're told elsewhere that it was through the angels that the law was given. We're told here also in verse 14 that the angels are ministering spirits... Sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And they're incredibly powerful. It was a, an angel who drove out all the nations in the promised land. The point the writer is making is that however important a role the angels play, Jesus is superior. Firstly, because he has a unique relationship with the Father, he is Son of God. Both Jesus and angels are messengers, but Jesus is also the message. Secondly, angels are called to worship Jesus. We see that in verse 6, to give him the praise that he deserves because of his nature as God. And thirdly, if you look down at verses 7 to 13, Jesus is superior because only Jesus is on the throne. So why does the writer of the Hebrews start with this wonderful description of Jesus? Well, to help them avoid drifting in their faith, By encouraging them to fix their eyes on Jesus, who is greater than anyone or anything else. So, if we are feeling maybe a little bit spiritually tired or lethargic, the answer is not to look for something other than Jesus, it's to look for more of Jesus. He is, in summary, a divine messenger, He's heir of all things, He's creator of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's sustainer of all things. He's purifier. He's king. And he's superior to the angels.